things of primary importance in the book of Samuel. Uh, first Samuel, I mean, it happens in, in both books. Um, but what I primarily want you to see is how this period marks a major transition in Israel's history. And it serves to set the stage in a very major way. We're talking about major things tonight, okay? I think I've said that already ten times. Major, major. Uh, For the eventual coming of Jesus the Messiah, okay? Uh, So we'll broadly cover the last half of 1 Samuel tonight, and uh, that will leave us with uh, really the the, uh, story of David to pick up with next week in 2 Samuel. But as a review and an introduction in one, uh, I want to remind us of a theme that we've revisited uh, over and over during our our walk through uh, the whole scriptures. And if you're visiting tonight, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. We started in Genesis, and we're going through the whole Bible. Uh, So that's that's the plan for the next three, three and a half years or so. Um, But here's the theme. It's that God created man to reign with him. And he has remained 100% faithful to that project. Even though man has gotten it wrong innumerable times, and even though it cost God what was most dear to him, God has remained faithful to his plan to rule the earth with man. Okay? It started with Adam. And we saw that God gave him dominion over the earth. And that he gave him instruction. He gave him his word. And the dominion was to be carried out according to the word. And when that happened, life would abound. And creation would flourish. When mankind took rulership over the earth according to the word of God. Right? In Abraham, we see God committing himself by a covenant to cause Abraham's family and descendants to bless the world, to bring life into the world. And why did he choose Abraham? One of the reasons was it said that he would command his children after him. Okay? And we see this over and over in Scripture. It's the purpose of God to have sons who rule over creation according to his word. Amen? And we see this time and time again. Um, So I want to briefly survey the primary leaders of the actual nation of Israel up to this point in Samuel. And we're still in review slash introduction here. And we need to keep in mind that no matter what form the story takes, God is after the same thing in his leaders. Of course, we know that it it took God's own son becoming a man and demonstrating the will of the Father Uh, for us to see a perfect example of what we were created to be. But even though we are still centuries away from Jesus at this point, uh, we can see so much of God's purpose here in these books, his promise, his faithfulness to his promise in this big picture story. Um, So the primary leaders of Israel up to this point, um, the the George Washington of Israel is Moses. Okay, Uh, Along with Aaron, they're sort of a president, vice president sort of thing. Um, it's inaugural week, so we've got to be patriotic here. <clears throat> God used Moses uh, to first deliver the nation from bondage. It was a family that had become a nation. 
And God took the nation out of the bondage of Egypt through Moses. And he actually created it as a nation then. The family had grown into a nation. And he chartered the nation through the covenant at Sinai with Moses at the helm. And it's through Moses that God reveals his law to the people. And it's Moses who preserves for us in writing the first five books. They're called the books of Moses. So we know about God's original plan and purpose because of Moses. Moses also spoke to God face to face and interceded to God on behalf of the people. Uh, And then came Joshua, who was really Moses 2.0. He had spent his whole life faithfully serving Moses, um, serving him, serving him, watching him, being with him. Uh, We get in Joshua a really good Old Testament picture of what it means to be a disciple, to be with, to learn, to do, to apprentice. And when he was released as the successor to Moses, his life looked pretty similar to Moses's, uh, except where Moses led the people out of Egypt, he led them out, and I guess you could add he led them about (laughs) in the wilderness, out and about with Moses. Um, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Okay, they both cross a river, right? And there's a lot of similarities between Moses and Joshua. After Joshua, it gets really dark really fast. We have this period known as the, the period of the Judges, which is really an era of what you could define as a, a pendulum swing between these one-off, spirit-filled deliverers and back over here into anarchy. And that's the book of Judges. And that's the state of leadership in Israel when we get to 1 Samuel. God will raise up a leader, and then they fall back into anarchy. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And if you remember about the judges, they were by no means ideal as leaders. Um, They were simply chosen and empowered by God to bring about a period of rest to the people because... Very simply, God is merciful. And the people were suffering, and they cried out to God, and he raised up a leader. And that's, that's what's happening in the book of Judges. And while they were indeed empowered by the Spirit of God, they, were, they accomplished mighty things, we don't see much evidence that they knew the law, or at least that they were zealous to bring about obedience to the law and really unite the nation around the Word of God. Okay? They were empowered, but they weren't really what God was looking for in a leader long term. And this is important to note, because one of the important things about a king is that they uphold the law, the word of God, the covenant, and make it the basis of their rule. And I'll say more about this in a little bit. So that brings us to Samuel, who we've, we've said is the final judge. He's the final judge. And he's serving as the primary leader during this crucial transition from the judges slash anarchy to the united kingdom of Israel. A monarchy, one man at the helm to bring the whole nation together under the rule of the law of God. Um, And one final introductory thing that I want to say is that this shift from... Judges, 
limping along to the monarchy. Um, and David's reign in particular is a key peg on which the story of God, the progression of God's story hangs. And the reason I say that is because in, in Matthew's outline of Israel, in the beginning of Matthew, he breezes through the genealogy of Jesus, and he points to Abraham, David, and the captivity, and then Christ. And he says from Abraham to David, there was 14 generations. From David to the captivity, there was 14 generations. From the captivity to the Christ, there's 14 generations. So it's a major peg in the history of the big picture. So I just want to bring that to your attention tonight because there's a lot going on in this story. And its significance reverberates through the rest of the story. Okay? Um, so the covenant with David, uh, it also signals a um, kind of the final prefigure of the Messiah. And what I mean by that is that in the time leading up to Jesus... The people of God knew what they were looking for in the Messiah, and it was a king in the lineage of David who would once again sit on the throne and rule not just Israel, but rule all nations. Okay? Um, so, the transition to a kingdom is not very smooth. And that's where the primary conflict comes in the book of Samuel. Uh, particularly in the stories of Saul and David, and that's where we're going to spend uh, the most of our time tonight. So there's four, uh, if you're outlining or taking notes, there's four uh, chapters here um, in, in this story. Number one is the people demand a king. Number two is Saul is anointed king. Number three would be Saul fails as king. And then number four is David is anointed uh, as as the king, and that finishes out the book. David's actually in exile by the end of the book. And Saul's kingdom doesn't really come to an end until the end of 1 Samuel. Um, it has ended in essence, but until he dies, uh, David doesn't take the, take the throne. Okay, so when the people demand a king, uh, Israel is coming out of a period where, like, like I said, the national leadership um, was, was decentralized. It wasn't, it wasn't united in one man. Um, in those days, there was no king in Israel, right? And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And these judges would stop the bleeding for a, for a brief period. Uh, but the nation was still very fragmented. And we come to an interesting juncture here in Samuel because the need for a king is truly great. The need for a king, and you can kind of hear that cry, throughout Judges. There's no king. There's no king. But God is not interested in giving the people a king as one more thing that's right in their own eyes. Does that make sense? And so that's where this tension comes in, into this story. The people need a king, but God is displeased that they're crying out for a king. God needs to raise up a man to lead his people. He needs to establish a lineage of rulership. But he also needs to teach his people that their desires are wicked. Okay? And he does this by giving Saul to the people. In God's wisdom and his sovereignty, he raises up Saul to be the king of the people. 
And this raises interesting questions about, did God know Saul was going to fail when he chose him, or what? I don't know. I don't think that's the important question to ask. The important thing to notice is that God knew who he wanted, and he chose him. And the other thing is that Saul could have succeeded, but he didn't. Okay, so both things are true. Um, if you go to Deuteronomy 17, this is really interesting. Deuteronomy 17, starting in, in verse 14. When you come into the land that you, the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So this is back in Deuteronomy. This is before they even entered the promised land. This is before the conquests of Joshua. And so the desire for a king and the need for a king itself was not evil. However, in that period of time, for the people to cry out, for a king, at the end of this period where God is raising up these judges and then they keep falling, lapsing back into idolatry, lapsing back into idolatry, doing what's right in their own eyes, for them to say, we need a king, is really, I mean, you can see the depth of the insult to God. A king is good, but for you to cry out for a king now is wicked. Does that make sense? After everything that's happened, after all the times that I've saved you and you've lapsed back into wickedness and idolatry, now you want a king. Okay? So you see the, the predicament that God's in. That's really what I think we need to take away from the story here. How do you, as the God of this nation, both raise up a godly king, but also rebuke your people for their wickedness and unbelief and disobedience? Okay? So here in this Deuteronomy thing, we see it's clearly spelled out. Here's the kind of man that a king needs to be. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So number one, they're not to rely on worldly power. Don't go back to Egypt. That's the first thing. Don't walk backwards. Go into the promised land. Second thing is don't let your heart be captured by the things of the world. Don't let your heart go out after many wives. Don't let your heart go after silver and gold. And listen to this, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Have your king sit down and write, and this is long, write for himself his own copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. Wow. It shall be with him, this copy of the law that he wrote for himself that was approved by the Levitical priests is going to stick next to him, and he shall have his nose in it <laughs> in all the days of his life. 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So five things here I want, I want you to write down about this king that's described here in Deuteronomy. I've already mentioned two of them. Don't rely on worldly power. Don't let your heart go after money or women. Know the word inside and out and do it. Four, fear God and obey him completely. And five, establish a hereditary succession of power. That was one thing, by the way, that the judges lacked. And when God was raising up the judges, it wasn't like he was establishing now another lineage, royal lineage. He was, these were all one-off guys and girl. Okay? Um, and there's an interesting, something that Gideon says uh, real quick. Let me uh, go there. In Judges 8.23. Gideon kind of even knows this about himself. He says, uh, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, <laughs> and my son will not rule over you. She kind of has this sense of, I'm just, this, I'm just kind of here, and this isn't going to last long. I'm just here to stop the, stop the bleeding, okay? Not so with the king. The king was to be a man who was zealous for the law, um, immersed in it, and was also setting up a, a succession to pass that on from generation to generation. Okay, so this is what God's looking for in a king. This is what God is setting up when, he's, when, when Israel was going to become a monarchy. This is what God is going to do. And so we can, we can use that as a backdrop to evaluate Saul's life. Okay, and you can see how many ways in which he failed. Almost point by point, <laughs> the story shows us how he failed. So the second chapter of this story um, runs from 1 Samuel 9 through 12. And uh, we can go there, say a few things about it. God reveals Saul to Samuel. So, So Saul was God's choice. He was the people's choice, but he was also God's choice. Okay? So we've got to be clear on that. Saul was not just put forth by the people as king. God revealed to Samuel, hey, go get Saul, okay? And he divinely appoints their meeting, um, Saul and Samuel. God divinely appoints that they meet um, as Saul is out looking for some lost donkeys, (laughs) of all things. Um, And this isn't the first time that God has used asses to get the job done. Um, So that should give some of us some hope. Anyway... Obligatory King James joke there. So Samuel, they're out and about, and they, they run into Saul. I mean, they run into Samuel. And Saul anoints, sorry, it's too many S names. Samuel anoints Saul, right? Is that correct? Okay. And the presence of God truly comes upon him. Right? It says he became another man. 
God gave him another heart, and the Spirit of God rushed on him. I mean, all these, all these signs of really being anointed, filled with the Holy Ghost, right? That's what Saul was. And it, it, it said it became an expression. Whoa, is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, Saul became truly powerful in the Spirit of God. So God picked Saul, and God really anointed him. But if what we've been saying about judges has taught us anything, um, we should realize that it's not just having a mighty manifestation of the Spirit of God on you that means you are a fit ruler for God's people. Okay? It's not just having an experience of power and victory uh, that God's looking for in a king. And at the end of chapter 10, um, Samuel presents Saul to the people as king, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, Saul, he's, he's, he's that big, tall guy. Awesome. What a great king that we have. So that should also signal some, some foreshadowing here. The people are really happy <laughs> about the king that God gave them. Right? But these people are not trustworthy, and their desires are wicked and, and just right in their own eyes. So Saul fits the people's expectation of what a king should look like, which I think is the first indication that something is amiss. That this guy was chosen by God maybe as a lesson for the people. Maybe as one of these instances where God gives people what they want so that they can see that that's really not what's, what's best for them. You know, there comes times where God has to give people over to what their desires are craving. It's like when they crave the uh, quail. He says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. It's going to be coming out your nostrils. You're going to have so much meat. You're going to be sick of meat. You know, I think that something of that is behind God's giving Saul to the people. You want a king? You want a big strong guy? Here's Saul. At the same time, I think we need to, I think we need to uh, maintain the truth that Saul could have succeeded if he would have done those things that we outlined from Deuteronomy. Uh, because it, God's, God says, I, or Samuel says to Saul later in the story, he says, you would have been established, but now you're not. Okay? So Saul is anointed. Uh, number three, Saul fails as the king. And this is, this is found in, in chapters 13 through 15. 13 and 15, chapter 13 and 15, have the two um, encounters that he has with Samuel, where uh, he clearly uh, disobeys, and um, Samuel says, you know, you're failing, and, and God's, God's going to look elsewhere now to establish his, his royal lineage. Um, Saul's initial reign is marked by mostly positive things. He, he delivers a victory. He kind of rallies the people, unifies them. Um, but we start to see him slide into patterns of rashness, impatience, incomplete obedience. Um, and all these are indicators of a lack of the true fear of God that's so essential in, in a king. And a heart to obey the word 
In other words, Saul may have reigned in a, in a way that was good enough for a judge, but God's doing something different. The stakes are higher now. And God's not just looking for a guy to go out and win a few battles in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's looking for a guy who will obey him completely with a heart after him. Okay? Because this is what's going to bring about redemption to his people and really establish them as a nation. <clears throat> okay, so then David is anointed. Well, let, let's look at uh, let's look at those two passages in chapter 13 and 15. I'll just read those um, so we can get a sense for that. So the first one is he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and uh, sacrifice. Samuel was a little late, and so Saul goes ahead and uh, he offers the sacrifice. And he says, uh, when I saw that you delayed, uh, I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. If you go to chapter 15. <clears throat> he sent to, uh, to destroy, to devote to destruction the Amalekites, who are kind of the perennial uh, people who would oppress Israel. And God says, I'm going to use you to judge these people. Um, and he says, you need to destroy all of them. And chapter 9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So in other words, doing what's right in his own eyes. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. There it is again. A man who will keep the law, the commandments of God. Samuel came to Saul and said, Blessed be you to the Lord. Uh, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You were supposed to destroy everything. I still hear some mooing. There should be no mooing. You were to destroy everything. Saul said, Oh, I have brought them here from the Amalekites, for the, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen a sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! <laughs> that's, that's enough. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Don't you understand? You have authority. You, you are to obey the commandment of the Lord. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
And then we have this great passage. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Chapter 16 uh, begins with Samuel grieving over the loss of Saul. And the Lord says, how long are you going to grieve? You don't think I have a plan? Since I have rejected him for being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse. So he sends him to David. Um, In chapter 16, we get one of the key thematic verses of 1 Samuel. In 7, Samuel's about to anoint the strongest, the eldest, uh, and God says, no, no, we're not doing it like that. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. In other words, we're not doing Saul again, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Um, I think the youth are memorizing that verse. It's one of the key verses in 1 Samuel. Um, It gets at the heart of a lot of these doing it the wrong way, doing it the right way. Penina, Hannah. Eli, Samuel. Saul, David. There's these pairs in Samuel. And it's all about, do you see as man sees or do you see as God sees? Amen? Amen. So God had his eye on David for a long time. We see back in chapter 13, he said, I've sought out a man after my own heart. He had him in mind. While David was out caring for sheep, being faithful to serve his father and brothers. So the story from here on out centers on the decline of Saul and the rise of David. And you really see, I mean, it's it's very clear, very well um, crafted here in the narrative. Saul just goes down and down and down and down and down and then he dies. Right? David goes up and up and up and up and up and up and then he's anointed king. And God's with David and God is against Saul. Um, and the story also highlights the contrast between Saul and David. And you can go read through these. I, I pulled out a few. Um, when David comes in the story of David and Goliath, Saul wants him to use armor. David says, I can't use the armor. That's not the way. I know how to fight. I'm relying on God, and I'm using what's tested. And so he uses a sling. Um, David is the youngest, and he's not tall like Saul. Um, And then uh, Saul, as his kingdom is rejected, he, he gets filled with jealousy at the success of David. Whereas David is anointed king and gets convicted and stricken in his heart that he would ever rejoice in the destruction of Saul's household. So Saul gets filled with jealousy. David gets filled with honor and compassion for the household of Saul. And that continues on even into, into 2 Samuel. It's pretty amazing the way that David takes care of Saul's family 
and in no way wants to sort of stamp out Saul. He's, he's meek and he's gentle toward the household of Saul. And he says, how could I ever reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed? So he fears God. David fears God in a way that Saul never did. And I'll, I'll leave it to Billy to dive a little more deeply into the life of David, um, however he wants to, um, next week. Um, but that's where we end up. That's where we end up. God gives the people a king that they receive. And it turns out that this is not the kind of king that can rule the nation. And he gets rid of that king, and then he establishes David, who becomes the image for us of the Messiah. Um, and I just want to read uh, a couple scriptures here. Um, I have two, two main takeaways. Uh, Jesus is the good king. Right? We always got to remember. We've we got we to look for Jesus in this. Jesus is the anointed king. Uh, listen to this from Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus came to sit on the throne of David. And the throne of David was a man after God's own heart who was zealous for the word, who was zealous for the commandment of the Lord. And God says, I'm setting that up forever. That's how I'm going to rule my, 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 uh, my people. Everything that Saul failed to do and everything that David foreshadowed, Jesus has fulfilled in the highest and most perfect manner. Um, so the first takeaway is joy to the world. <laughs> the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus is our king. Uh, the second thing I want to say is you are a king. You are a king. And what I mean by this is that you were created to rule and reign with God. So that's awesome. <laughs> you were created to take dominion over the portion that God gives to you and to rule it according to the word of God. You are a king. But this also means that the stakes for you are very high. You need to write yourself a copy of the word and keep it with you and get in it every day and night and learn obedience and learn the fear of God. I love Dan's sermon last week. I think we need to just come back to that over and over. What did God need in the king? He needed him to fear God. Even the king needs to fear God. So maybe you're small in your own eyes. No, I'm not a king. You're a king. God has anointed you to take dominion over the life that he has set before you and to rule it according to his word. 
So don't be like Saul and take that authority and kind of treat it lightly. Get scared and do things in your own way when it seems like it's not going to work out. Or just do kind of part of the way, but no, surely God can't mean that he wants me to do that. He must mean that I'm going to save a little bit over here, right? No, you're a king. The stakes are high. And you need to to live your life according to the word of God. Amen? Um, So I think Billy's going to come and lead us in some prayer uh, along these lines. And uh, the word of God for the people of God.